Today, we're thrilled to have Mia Parker, Environmental Performance and Certification Director at MOE Canada West. Mia has over 20 years of experience in environmental regulatory management with an emphasis on fisheries and aquaculture. Welcome, Mia, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. To get us started, can you tell us, tell our audience a little bit more about who you are, your past experiences, and what your role at Moe Canada West entails? Well, thank you for inviting me, Catherine. Um, I do love to talk about aquaculture, but I don't really love to talk about myself. So I think one of the things that's important to know about me is that I chose aquaculture for two reasons when I was doing my um, Bachelor of Science degree. And one was I was working with a very established, uh, well-respected specialist scientist. And in third year, I had to choose my major, choose my focus. And I asked him for advice. And he said, I have some good advice for you. He said, sort of leaned in like, this is it. I'm going to get these pearls of wisdom from this amazing scientist. And he said, always work with things you can eat. (laughs) and it's actually turned out to be quite practical advice but (laughs) because you know when you're young and you're first starting out and maybe you don't have a very secure um, paycheck if you're doing research on things you can eat you can always put dinner on the table Um, and but the other thing truly is that um, I've always had a really strong environmental focus um my uh, my family refers to me as a West Coast Earth cookie, so somebody who is always thinking about uh, the planet and their footprint. And I've always seen aquaculture as a way to sustainably feed the planet, and I am I still believe that. So that's the focus that I've taken is to grow healthy, delicious, nutritious, high quality food and for a reasonable cost and a very low environmental footprint. And that's really the objective of um, my role in MOE, uh, particularly for MOE Canada West, is I'm, I, I think a way to say this is I, I sort of lead on the sustainable development. So choosing um, sites and working with our saltwater production to make sure that we are um, making the best use of the places that we farm and maximizing how um, well the fish grow and how much fish we can produce, but still staying with, within a very minimal environmental footprint. I think that makes sense to a lot of people. I want you know, for people that have been listening to our podcast since we started it, we have explored various topics. Um, we've looked at nutrition, um, how to buy your seafood, how to prepare your seafood once you have it home, to name a few. And today, like you kind of touched on a little bit, we're going to focus on a topic that I know you both know a lot about, and also it's near and dear to your heart. And that's the topic of fishing and farming in the global community and the importance of looking more to the ocean than we probably have as a future food source. So let's dive into this, all puns intended on that one. Um, And... Can you tell us what what's a typical day for Mia like? What what are you doing day to day in your job? Oh wow, I have um well I work with an amazing team. Um, they're very experienced. 
I have uh, three managers that work with me and um, we work in a really interconnected way with the other areas of the company. So we work really well with um, freshwater production. They produce the um, young fish that go to sea to be grown out. And we work with saltwater production um, who grow the fish out to harvest size. We work with processing um, and we work with fish health. So what we do is we have three main areas that we focus on. Uh, one is on the, I don't sound, I'm trying not, I'm trying not to use acronyms because we were talking about that earlier. Um, one of my colleagues works on the um, licensing and permits to actually operate the farms. And so he's a, um, he's our sustainable development manager. So he looks at existing farms, monitoring them to see how they're performing uh, from an environmental perspective, how they perform against the reg environmental regulations. He works with the other groups to determine if we can put more fish on a site or if a site needs to be moved or where where it's appropriate for a new site. So he does all of the um, the monitoring and the management and fills out the applications and he deals directly with the government on, on those issues. But he also works with um, contractors and our in-house staff to assess monitoring results to see if we're performing the way that we think we should. Um, and he, um, oh my gosh. So he, he also works on when we decide we're no longer going to use a farm. He's the one who deals with safely, um, returning the farm back to its natural state. So he's got an incredibly important role. Um, and I just realized as I'm talking, all three of my managers are male, which I hadn't really noticed before. But, <laughs> and I have a, another um, colleague, and he is the manager of community partnerships. And he oversees our engagement with the nations in whose territories we farm. So he makes sure we have agreements with all those nations, and he works to make sure that we have um, really good engagement so that we can... Um, fulfill the agreements we have and work really closely with the nations to make sure that um, we're meeting their expectations of how we're going to perform based on their historical knowledge and indigenous knowledge. And um, so we, we talk about what we're going to do, where we're going to farm, how many fish we'd like to put in, and we work with the nations to do that. And then we, we, we work in those communities. So we try to be a really good neighbor and he also coordinates, um, our volunteering in the community, um, tours out to the farms, um, donations, supporting sports teams. Uh, we recently, we recently supported a memorial basketball tournament in Clemte, British Columbia, and I was really privileged to be there for the weekend. And that was amazing. Basketball is incredibly important to coastal First Nation communities, and um, it's a level of play I don't think I've ever seen in a community league. So it was pretty amazing. Really? That's, that's interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> Very unexpected. Um, and then my, uh, my third uh, colleague, he, he manages what we call our regulatory affairs. So uh, permitting and licensing and um, all the work that we do with our freshwater facilities or our, our land-based facilities. He makes sure that um, he works with provincial government to manage the effluent standards and um, he also uh, works with a lot of the coastal communities from the regulatory and marine conservation perspective. 
So he's pretty key. He's looped into all the marine planning spaces that um, that we need to be aware of and part of to make sure that we are, you know, keeping up with the times. I think I'm not sure if um, if everybody knows this, but of course, there's global commitments to conserve the ocean, and Canada's commitment is 30% of our ocean space is conserved by 2030, and so we're part of that process as well. That is a lot going on at the same time. <laughs> Freaking <laughs> goodness. You know, one of the things that I, I personally found very interesting is the unique relationship that Samoa Canada West has with the Kitasu and First Nations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know that you, 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 ta- you, you talked about it a little bit to talk about, you know, we're trying to have a relationship with them and also respect their values and their history. Can you talk a little bit about how we're doing that and what that relationship is like and, and how we are ensuring that we respect their respect of the land, if that makes sense? It, it does. and it, I, But I think you just nailed that that's exactly what we're trying to do. So cor- corporately, Moe has a really strong, um, we're really lucky in that Moe has a really strong corporate uh, value system about respecting communities and culture. And in British Columbia, many of us who live in smaller coastal communities have grown up side by side with indigenous communities. And in some cases, you can't really see any separation. We're all occupying the same space and shopping at the same grocery stores. So while Canada has a big focus on reconciliation as a, as a government, as a nation, um, it's something I think that Moe has had uh, in place in, as a as a matter of practice, probably for over twenty years, and I think we're just getting better and better at it. And reconciliation really is is respecting and acknowledging that um, in, Indigenous nations have the right to determine their own future and their own present. Um, and I think that that's a piece that is so complicated. Everybody wants to make it really complicated, but it's really about acknowledging. Um, the right to the right of indigenous communities to determine their own future, which they haven't been able to do under the existing um, legal system in Canada, but that's changing. So the Kittisu Nation are, are actually um, pioneer salmon farmers themselves. So they started salmon farming close to 30 years ago, around 30 years ago, um, and they were farming Chinook salmon at a very small scale. Um, it wasn't really profitable. They were having, uh, you know, challenges. Actually, Chinook are very difficult to farm. And so they went looking for a, a company, an established farming company to come and partner with them to provide some expertise and and support. And so the Kitasu, in Canada, you need a license uh, from the federal government to tells you how much fish and what kind of fish you can farm. But where you farm is is um, licensed or permitted by the provincial government. So in British Columbia, you need a tenure and a license. And Kitasu hold the tenure, so they're kind of our land they're kind of our landlord. But we have a, a cooperation agreement with them, where we farm in their territory. They worked we've worked together to develop a model of stocking and harvesting that fits within their traditional. Uh, 
um, their traditional knowledge and their traditional stewardship of the land. And Kitasu has over 50% of their marine spaces. They have acted with the government to conserve those spaces. So they have marine protection put in place for 50% of their territory. And we're farming in about 2% of their territory. And we have the Kitasu model, which is a rotational um, stocking and harvest model. So we, we farm uh, two farms. We have four farms in operation at any given time. Two have just been stocked. Two are in the last year of growth and ready for harvest. And we rescue mm -hmm. two farms. And we have a limit on how many we have, we are licensed for more fish than we produce, but our agreement with the Kittisu is guided by their comfort in how many fish they feel is appropriate for the area where we're farming. And we respect that. That's part of our agreement. But we also um, work, in, we, there's also a Kittisu smoking smokehouse where they produce Clemtu Spare, which is brilliantly delicious. Well, it feels like an ad, sorry, but it is brilliantly delicious smoked salmon. And I love smoked salmon, so... It's one of my favorite products. And um, so there's a processing plant that uh, is in right in the heart of Clemtu Village. And we support them as much as we can in their efforts to um, continue the economic development in their community. And that, I think that's the most advanced relationship we have. But we have agreements with every nation in whose territory we farm. And the nations are as involved as they wish to be, and our strategic objectives or our commitment as a as a company from Canada West is to co-develop business in the territories. So we are working towards um, supporting each other, the nations supporting us, and us supporting the nations, and making sure that as we develop farming in our territories, they have full governance and oversight of what we're doing. I want to, one of the things that you said, and I want to kind of circle back to it, is the economic importance of what's happening there. And, you know, I, I want to, I would love you to expand on that a little bit because, you know, we, we hear about the environmental impact of things, but I also think that there's value there with the economic impact or the economic relationship that Moe Canada West has with the Kitasu. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I will talk a little bit about it, but I try not to speak on behalf of the Kinesu too much. So I'm going to really talk about it from maybe from Moe's perspective. Of course. <clears throat> well, is it okay if I back up a little bit and, and speak about the definition of sustainability? Absolutely. So when people hear sustainability, they think, oh, they, you mean environmentalism or how you're talking about the environment. But sustainability is really holistic. It's actually about economic, social economic sustainability, environmental sustainability. And so it's when you talk about sustainability, you're talking, you talk about people, the environment, and their connection to the environment. And when we talk about something being sustainable, what we mean is, honestly, is that the business can operate for many generations. The communities can benefit for many generations. And the environment can continue to function as it should for many generations. And so the piece that gets missed all the time is that human beings are part of the environment and we're part of sustainability. And we have to be con 
continue, we have to be considered as part of the ecosystem. It's not an ecosystem without us. So we have a place and a role in it and you have to balance environmental impact with benefit to humans. And so what you're looking for from a community perspective is that sweet spot where everybody has enough and no one ecosystem service is overused so that there's an impact that's more than, you know, there's an unacceptable impact or an impact that tips the balance. So you're looking for that sweet spot in, in the middle of using the environment and harming the environment, but it really is for the benefit of humans um, and, and their cultures and their society. And so that's one of the reasons why in Kittisu we have this, um, this sort of Kittisu model, which is a bit of a ceiling for us in terms of production, because what that leaves for Kittisu is about 50% of their economy is based on salmon farming. So we provide, they provide the ceiling, but we provide the floor. And we're living in the space between the floor and the ceiling and everybody is doing well enough. And what we're doing with other, other communities is working with their leadership and their government. So they're either their hereditary leadership and their elected leadership to find the floor and the ceiling for them because it's not going to be the same for every community. They're going to have different needs and interests and it's not going to, and they're going to have a different physical environment that will also set up limits and boundaries on what can be sustainably achieved in their location. Thank you, Mia. Cause I have to say, I've never heard anybody put sustainability so eloquently and succinctly. That, I mean, usually when we talk about sustainability, it has a very environmental focus, but I've never heard somebody encompass all, I guess, all players in it before. And to, to say exactly what you said, you need to find the sweet spot. And I think, I think for me that that's probably one of the things I'm going to remember from our conversation today is that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the sweet spot between, I guess, making sure that all players are are okay. I mean, that sounds kind of basic, but I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do. So thank you for putting it that way. I think that may be very helpful for people to kind of understand, um, understand what's happening. Huh. I, I want to also go back to another thing that you had said earlier, and I, I just want to touch on it because it's something that we've never really talked about on this podcast before. And that is the the process of decommissioning a farm. You know, we always talk about, you know, what what it takes to get the farm up and running, but we've never really talked about the flip of that to say when a, a farm is decommissioned. And I'm not even sure if that is the correct terminology. So I'll, I'll let you take the lead on that. But can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. And actually, you're exactly right. It's decommissioned. And it's funny because everyone knows the word decommission, but nobody really thinks that you commission a farm, <laughs> but you sort of do. Um, well, it's an interesting way. When you decommission, it's almost like you reverse engineer the commissioning of the farm. So before we, I won't go into detail because we do talk about this a lot. When you go into a farm though, you do a habitat survey. So you get, you're, so you're making sure that you're not over any critical habitat. You're not impacting any endangered species or species at risk. You know, is it suitable? Do you have a, is it, is the bottom underneath the farm, the kind of bottom that will 
happily accept, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on podcast, but you know, fish, fish poop, um, because that, <laughs> but that's what we manage. A big part of what we manage is fish poop because in the sea, fish swim in schools and move away and distribute it. And in our case, we ask our fish to stay put to put netting around them to make sure they do. So we want to make sure that it's not going to overwhelm the space under the farm. And then what we do when we decommission is it's almost the exact reverse of commissioning. We take the nets away for cleaning and servicing. We remove the cage structure, the pen structure, um, and take that away and reuse it or recycle it. Uh, then we, uh, same thing with, um, the, we have barges on site. I don't know why we call them barges because they're really kind of more like massive float homes, but that's where we would normally store the feed and where it's, uh, lab spaces and the office space and the living spaces. So we take those and usually um, use them at another farm. Or if, as sometimes happens, technology overtakes the lifespan of the equipment, then we usually use that equipment um, either to, su to support community efforts or um, see if our First Nations partners can use them for their ventures. Some some our old barges become fishing lodges or get repurposed into things like kelp farming, um, even uh, hotel accommodation. Um, and then once everything is off-site, we go in with um, an ROV, which is a remote operated vessel. And we run um, transects, which is essentially we do flight paths, or I don't know what they call it, swim path across the entire, <laughs> what could be called, across the entire um, tenure in a big grid pattern. And we use that and we ping that with the GPS so that if we see any debris, because some of the farms have been in operation for over 30 years, and practices and technology have changed over time. So, you know, right. while we have really robust systems now that are quite weather resistant, but in the old days, we might have 30 years ago, things might have sunk to the bottom. So we find all those things using video. And, and then we have a system of divers and cranes and with an ROV and we go back to those locations and we recover any debris. And we do that until the ROV shows there's nothing beneath the farms. And then we pull up the anchor grid. So the big anchors that would keep the farm in place. Right. And do one last sweep and some sediment testing. And then we put package that into a report, sign an attestation that says we're confident this has been returned to the way it was when we were given the tenure, which is really a, a long-term lease. And uh, we, we give that back to the provincial government and they assess it. And once it's they approve it, if it, then we call that returned to the crown. And there you have no evidence that there was ever a salmon farm there. So it's cut. It goes under the the premise of leave no trace. I'm assuming. Leave no trace. Yeah, and it, we call it, and it literally is. I think the saying it must be returned to the crown in the condition as formally. Oh, that sounds yeah. very official. I like that. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. How long does this whole pro? It sounds very extensive. How long does this whole process take typically? Well, ooh, it can take. We, we normally plan for six months. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether, you know, obviously you're not lifting large anchors, suits or two ton anchors off the bottom of the ocean floor. If it is 
high waves or high wind or um, poor visibility. So it can take longer, but we usually try to give it about six months. It can take two to, th you know, up to three months to remove all the um, floating structures and find them suitable homes and, you know, either store them, as I said, store them, recycle them or repurpose them. And then we allow another three to four months for the, the cleanup. It can go very quickly, can take a little bit longer. But we really want to make sure that we've scheduled enough time that we can go back and be really certain that we've that it's cleaned up to our satisfaction. And I think that that's the, the piece that's important. And what's really kind of cool is that the way we're regulated in Canada, particularly in BC, is that we don't we never have more than a temporary impact on the bottom underneath the farm. So it's it's meant to be kind of a bounce back system where you get a little bit of an impact, but it's temporary. So from but after six months, the, the bottom under the farm is so back to normal that you couldn't even, you couldn't tell that there had been anything there. So it's quite a, it's quite a, a process art. For when we're sampling and monitoring, we normally find, well, we stay, Moe, gosh, I'm, I'm babbling a little bit, Moe, Canada West stocks our farms so that we always meet the most stringent of the two thresholds that we're regulated against. And we like to make sure that we're sort of really staying within that sustainable space. And so by the time we've decommissioned the farm, there's really no record that a farm has ever been there. So it goes back to its original um, setting, for want of a better way of putting it, pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of our practices. Well, I find that fascinating because it's, again, it's not something I always hear about the front end of it, but I never hear about, you know, the back end. You know, I always hear about the, the setting up of the farms, but never, never what happens after. So I'm, I'm personally fascinated by that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit on you, and I want to explore the topic of the rise in global demand for food, um, and ultimately, if if and how supply can be increased to meet this demand. Um, Land-based expansion, you know, obviously can be executed, but it has its drawbacks, and so some have proposed that we should look to the ocean to increase our food supply. Can you talk to us a little bit about this and why you think, or if you think that it, oceans are important to our future food source? Okay, well, and I promised my team I wouldn't use a lot of numbers because they're like they said I should not get too nerdy on this. So you can <laughs> get a little nerdy with us, Mia. I don't want you. To, I don't want you not to do what you do. <laughs> but I, I think that we all know that most of the planet is water. And I think that we're all getting increasingly aware that the climate is changing, that it's not as dependable and predictable as it was. And one of the things that it's, we're starting to feel, but maybe we don't really talk about or articulate, is that an unpredictable climate makes growing food very challenging. So when, when you used to know the rainy season was this many months and these are the dry seasons and then planting and harvesting were all focused around the seasons, but now we don't 
really have predictable seasons. And if you know, you're comfortable with the climate change models that are being shared, we're going to be less predictable. What we're predicting with accuracy is a period of really, really rapid changes in climate. So places that used to be dry are flooding. Places that used to flood are dry. That makes it really challenging to grow food. So what you what we need to be looking toward is an a way to produce food that is less susceptible to those swings in climate. It's the planet. Nowhere is immune to climate change. But the ocean is a huge buffering system. The ocean is big. We talk, when I say the ocean, we all, you hear people say, oh, there's five oceans and there's seas. Sorry. <clears throat> but really, the ocean is one massive body of water. And its role in climate is to be the buffer, to mitigate the change, to bring warm currents to cold places and cooling currents to warmer places. And it's that it connects us and it moderates what's happening to us. So it makes total sense that when getting, when farming on land becomes more challenging and less predictable, we need to look at farming somewhere and producing food somewhere that is less subject to those rapid changes. And that's the ocean. But you can't just keep pulling fish out of the ocean. And I'm not, I don't want to suggest that all fishing is unsustainable because I don't believe that. I believe that um, many countries highly regulate their, their fisheries and the fishermen, commercial fishermen, by and large, the vast majority of them are extremely responsible and also are concerned about how climate change is affecting the ability to harvest sustainably. But it does mean that we're not able to predict how large our stocks are as accurately as we would like. And that means that we're being more and more cautious about how we harvest and how many fish we harvest out of the ocean when we are commercially fishing. So in aquaculture, you have the opposite in that you know how many fish you put in and you're able to predict how many fish you take out. And I think it's important to know that I don't really just mean fish with fins when I say that. I also mean shellfish, um, prawns, shrimp, um, crab, lobster. There's a lot of species of um, protein that are being farmed now with more and more, um, more and more successfully. And so marine protein is also really healthy protein. It's protein that human beings, boy, I'm going to nerd out, human beings convert very well. So when you eat fish, most of what you eat, over 80% of what you eat is absorbed and used by your body. So there's very little waste product. So you don't need, you know, you might need six ounces of um, land-based protein to get about three ounces of protein into your body. Whereas with fish, it's just about what you see is what you get. And even more so if you go to shellfish. So it's a really efficient way to provide high quality nutrition to people. And it's a more, I think it's going to be a more, um, I don't want to use the word reliable, I think a more, a less changeable, a more consistent place to grow fish. And it is the biggest part of the planet. So it's kind of a, it's a, a form of, I think, shifting to growing food in the water is a more secure way to ensure that people are getting high quality 
good, nutritious food. And it's also a way of kind of climate change adaptation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, right. So we're sort of, we're adapting how we respond to the planet by finding ways that are a bit more resilient to what's happening to the planet. I love the way you put that, I Mia, mean, because it also it, it almost makes it sound like a no-brainer. You know, when you I think when you put it in such simple, clear terms, I think anybody that hears it at least at least in their mind starts to it starts to spark the idea of that makes a lot of sense. It's it's a no-brainer. You know what I mean? And you know, you're talking. I'm glad you pointed out that we're not just talking about fish with fins. You know, we're talking about a lot of other things. I know one of the things that are that are getting a lot of um, a lot of press recently are kelp farms. You know, so that's another thing that that is coming up in in the idea of having food coming out of the ocean. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Well, I, if it comes to the ocean, I like to eat it. I think that's a good policy. <laughs> I want to thank you for, you know, taking, first of all, taking the time because I know your schedule is very, very busy and, you know, to, to really talk to us and give us some useful insights on topics. And, you know, I think that this will, this will be a springboard or a catalyst for people to start to have some interesting conversations in starting to wrap this up. I want to know if there are any thoughts or nuggets of information that you want to share with our audience. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about or touched on that you would like to, you know, people to start thinking about? Okay. Well, I am going to be a little bit nerdy. So I just, I want, I do want people to think about um, their footprint as you know, when I'm, I know we're talking a little bit to people who are interested in where their seafood comes from and, and should they be eating seafood? And I want to say, yes, you should be eating seafood. And if you can eat local seafood, you should eat local seafood. So when you're making your choices, I'm not asking you to limit your diet. I'm not asking you to feel guilty about what you eat. But we all know our drivers for food are, is it a good price? Is it a good quality? Is it safe to eat? But then maybe the next thing you can say to yourself is, is it fish? Because that's really good for me and it's good for the planet. And if I can buy local fish, you should buy local fish. Because let's think about how far we move our food. Um, and what that contributes to climate change as well. That makes a lot of sense. I love talking to you, Mia, because honestly, your your depth and breadth on this knowledge is 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 very vast, and obviously, your passion on aquaculture is also very infectious. So, it, for me, I, I personally love talking to you. Let me ask you: if people wanted to delve into this a little more, and they just wanted to, I don't know, understand about aquaculture, understand about environmental footprint like you were talking about where do you think's a good a good starting point for them do you have any sites or or resources that you recommend oh gosh i have to say that i'm i'm always pretty engaged in the really highly technical ones because this is my um but you know there's some really cool stuff on the um high level ocean panel website and i think that that's pretty accessible to people and also um I hope this isn't too nerdy, but I actually, the Food and Agriculture Organization has some really interesting websites or web materials on aquaculture and on aquaculture in specific countries. And so it is kind of a cool suggestion because it's a resource that I use and I often will go there and get a sense of kind of what the new trends are, what's happening globally, and then I can delve into the scientific literature afterwards. 
So I do think that that's a good, a good site to look. Perfect. Well, thank you. I hope, it, again, I hope it's a springboard for people to just get curious and, and learn some more information. So thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. It has been a pleasure. And, you know, we might have a part two to this podcast, you know, with you and your team in the future. So I, I hope maybe we can make that happen. Thank you very much for having me. It wasn't nearly as, as um, I was a little bit nervous. So thank you very much for having me. And it was really fun to talk about it with you. And I like your questions are so engaging and it gave me, gave me a chance to look at things from a slightly different perspective. Oh, I'm very happy. Thank you again, Mia. <laughs> okay, bye.